The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Psalms. We'll be reading Psalm 91, the psalm that we just sang from. Psalm 91, and you'll be able to find that on page 684 of your pew Bible. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against your stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I'll set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The word of God. The text which will be the focus of the sermon for this morning is those final verses where God speaks. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who do you trust in life? Most people are naturally inclined to have a certain amount of trust for those who are in authority over them. Children trust their parents. People usually trust policemen. While you may not trust the people in government necessarily, you at least have faith that the structure of government itself will for now, keep our country running relatively smoothly. Trust is built into us as created beings. You'll find that almost everyone, everywhere, trusts at least someone. And those who trust no one, the exceptions to the rule, mostly don't trust people because they had their trust broken once upon a time. But they did trust someone. This trust is natural to us. It's because we were created by one God and Father in His image. He created us to be relational creatures and relationships require trust to survive and thrive. 
and we have some measure of that left in us from before the fall. Now, it can be easy, relatively easy, to look at the people in our lives and say whether or not we trust them. A child can look at their dad and say that he knows that he won't betray his trust. He's not going to praise us one day and the next day brush us off or snap at us just based on his mood. He's going to be consistent and, as best as he can, pursue what's best for us. Our mom is going to keep our secrets and not tell them to our friends or siblings as a joke or to make fun of us. My parents have my back and I trust them. My foreman or boss will support me in my work environment. My teacher won't make me into a laughingstock in front of the class, but will encourage me to grow. I trust them. But when it comes to God, it feels a little bit different, doesn't it? How do we know how to trust Him? What does trusting Him look like? The passage that we look at today starts off with the idea of trust at the forefront. We read there, He who dwells in the secret place or the shelter of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him I will trust. The picture that the author of our psalm gives is of someone who has found their shelter in the protective care of our Father, and firmly believes in it. But what does that look like? How can we feel that sense of protection? What does God hold up as an ideal that we can, by the power of His Holy Spirit, strive towards? It's with that question brought to mind by our psalm that God Himself steps forward to answer. Verses 14 to 16 are written in his voice. No longer does the psalmist speak, but he moves aside to let God speak. And it's with these words, it's these words that we'll be looking at today under the following theme and points. God presents us with the ideal of trust. And we'll see, first of all, this trust is grounded in God's care, and second, this trust responds to God's care. Before getting into the specifics of this psalm, of these verses, it's good to make sure that we understand what exactly it is that he's saying. When you read the words of the psalm, it sounds pretty good. The Lord is a refuge and a fortress to us. Yes, he's someone we can run to in the face of potential danger. It may not be my first reaction, but I'd certainly like it to be. Okay, we can understand that. Then we read the next part. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. The Lord reveals his protective nature here using the picture of a mother bird that spreads out its wings so that all of the chicks can run underneath for safety. When we're in the midst of trouble, we can run to him. And we're tracking with that so far. God will deliver us from trouble when we run to him. But then it gets a little strange from our perspective, doesn't it? We read, you shall not be afraid of 
the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. These sound like terrifying things. Are believers never to be afraid? I get scared, and there are times when I'm in, in life when I feel like I'm way over my head. And I'm certain that all of you have had times when those things frightened you as well. But then it gets even stranger, the way he describes it. We read, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. And it's at this point that we give our heads a shake. It's tempting to say to the psalmist here, really? Do you live in the same world that I live in? Those who make the Lord their dwelling place run into trouble and opposition all the time, don't they? We read about David or, or Peter or Paul. Did these people not make the Lord their dwelling place? David was driven out and persecuted by so many different people. Peter, well, he ended his life, according to church history, according to church tradition, being crucified upside down. The Apostle Paul, well, you just read through the book of Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians, and you can read about the number of things that he went through. Did they not seek safety in their God? And did they not face all kinds of trouble? Psalmist, what world do you live in? What the psalmist is saying here is not that the person who follows God will never suffer harm. We read in Psalm 94, only a few psalms further, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and, break, and, and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Jesus himself utters this truth in John 16, verse 33, where he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Tribulation is a fact of life. We live in a broken world. Suffering will happen to you. You will be victimized. Jesus goes on to utter an even more profound truth with the words that immediately follow. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The theologian Joel Beakey writes about this, saying, The Christian's life is a strange paradox in this world. A puzzling mixture of distress and peace, of fear and courage. And that's exactly right. That's exactly the point that Jesus makes, and that's exactly the point that the psalmist is making here. Christ has overcome the world. Everything is in God's hands, everything is under his control. 
It's the same truth that we consider in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's our home visit theme for this year. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Under our Father's care, nothing happens to us by chance. If it's not His will, then it won't happen. But in the meantime, and if it is His will, it will happen. But in the meantime, we're untouchable. The verses 3 to 8 of our psalm gives a sense of the kind of safety that a person who rests in the hands of the omnipotent, that's the all-powerful God, feels. It's the image of a person moving confidently through a battlefield with people falling all around them, left, right, and center. They carry out their task with boldness because when it's my time to go, it's my time to go. In the meantime, God has me in his hand. They walk through pestilence when people are dropping around them like flies. When it's time to go, it's time to go. But as long as God has us in his care and doesn't want us to come to harm, we're untouchable. When he chooses to take me home, I will do so. But in the meantime, I'm untouchable. It's this mentality that has helped Christians in the past face incredible hardship and insurmountable odds with staggering bravery. There's a plague that's named after the church father, Cyprian. Cyprian's plague is named after him because he's the one who, uh, he, he's the one who wrote down the history around it. He wrote sermons about it. We know about it through him. It's not because he caused the plague. There's a, there's a plague named after this church father which burned through the Roman Empire from the years 249 to 262. For more than a decade, this dreadful plague wreaked havoc on the people of the empire. Cyprian's biographer, Pontus of Carthage, wrote, All were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends, as if with the exclusion of the person who was to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself also. There lay about the meanwhile over the whole city no longer bodies, but the carcasses of many. At its height, the Cyprian plague was said to have killed 5,000 people a day in the city of Rome alone. Two-thirds of the people in Alexandria died of this plague. But while the rest of the Roman world ran from the plague, or even selfishly exposed friends and family so that they wouldn't have to suffer alone, Christians embraced it and sought to become a hand and a foot to those who were around. They said, if I die, I die. But my every breath is in the hand of the Lord. And so I'm going to work in the service of his kingdom. It doesn't matter if a thousand die around me. If the Lord has me in his hand and wants me to continue in kingdom work here, my covenant God won't let me die. And if he wants to take me home, I'm okay with that. Because I'm in his hand and it will be time for me to go. 
thousands of people across the empire were converted because of the selfless love these Christians were willing to show. They were willing to lay down their own lives, even for their enemies. But it was a boldness that they got from a psalm like ours today. This is the same attitude that causes a Christian soldier to fall on a grenade for the sake of his friends. It's this knowledge that allows Christians to speak boldly in the public square, even in the face of persecution. In the hands of the Lord, you're never alone. You're dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, this isn't to say that you willingly put yourself into danger. The devil tried to convince Jesus that that was what it meant when he told Jesus to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple during the time of Jesus' testing in Matthew 3. In fact, the devil even quoted this psalm. He quoted verses 11 to 12. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the, st- foot against the stone. Jesus told them that's not what the psalm means. The psalm tells us of the knowledge that if we put our trust in God, then he'll keep us in his care no matter what the world throws at us. But it doesn't give us free reign to recklessly put God to the test. Measured and careful actions submitted to the Lord for his glory will result in his blessing. Recklessness in the name of God taking care of you, on the other hand, is just sin. And Jesus rebukes the devil for putting this forward. But recklessness aside, our trust and boldness that flows from this knowledge that we have of the fact that we dwell in the shelter of the Most High has at its foundation that knowledge that we abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Our God is good. And as we read in Romans 8, verse 28, he can turn all things for our good, even the worst things that can happen to us in life. They can be used for our good if and if we are willing to look to the Almighty God as our fortress and shelter through Jesus Christ, his Son. And that brings us to our second point. Having given us a firm foundation for our trust, our Lord then gives us two ways in which we can express our trust for Him, responding to His care. First, holding fast to Him in love, and second, calling on Him. For the person who does look to the Lord for care, the Lord gives a picture of what living trusting him looks like and he writes in the opening words of our text because he has set his love upon me therefore I will deliver him what does it mean to set your love upon the Lord you could look at the analogy of the situation of a husband and wife when you as a husband make your vows you're saying to the world before God and his witnesses that you have set your love upon this woman that you're taking as your wife. You have set your love upon her and this is radically different from falling in love with someone. 
If you fell in love with someone, you're simply basing your relationship on the emotional feelings that you got. Now, that's not to say that it's to the exclusion of these emotional feelings. We certainly have them, and they're a good thing, something to rejoice in. But they're not something that you base your relationship off of. If you're simply basing your relationship on the emotional feelings that you got, then you may hang on for a while in the hopes that your feelings will sort themselves out, and eventually the two of you will get along together again. You may even be willing to sacrifice a few things here and there to make up for it, but you'll eventually throw in the towel if it's taking too long. And you can have the same thing with your relationship with God. If you're merely basing your relationship with God on the feelings that you get out of it, a spiritual high that you had at one point or another, then you haven't set your love on Him. You're following along the same principle that we read here of simply falling in love. And that's something that won't last. But if you have set your love on someone, then it doesn't matter what happens. By the grace of God, you'll make every sacrifice necessary to keep your marriage healthy. You'll strive to build up your spouse even when you don't feel like it. You'll stay up later or get up early to be able to do devotions and pray with them even when you want to go to bed so that your relationship stays grounded in the Lord. When the bleak, dry wind of marital strife blows through your relationship together, as will likely happen during your lifetime, you look to God for strength and remember your vows. You remember that you have set your love upon this person. You haven't based it on falling in love, but you've set your love on them. And by the grace of God, you'll continue in that. When temptations arrive, they won't distract you because your love has already been placed on someone else. Your affections are already placed elsewhere through a deliberate choice. Your time and that portion of your life is already invested elsewhere, so there's no room for this other thing to come in and capture your affections. You know this. It's an eternal truth that's captured in the words of Proverbs 5 verse 15. And 18 to 20. Rejoice with the wife of your youth and always be enraptured with her love. That's a command, not a description of an experience. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. This isn't easy, especially not in difficult times. It's a deliberate choice. You can choose to set your love on your wife and pursue her, or you can choose to remove your love from her and set it elsewhere. But I fell in love with someone else. As one pastor said pretty bluntly, whatever you fall into, you can climb out of again. Set your love on your wife. Pursue her. 
And wives, the same goes for your relationship with your husband because it's not a question of falling in love. It's a question of by God's grace and in his strength to set your love on someone besides yourself. And this carries over to our passage today. You have set your love on the Lord. It wasn't something you did in your own strength and the Bible makes that very clear. We love him because he first loved us. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, verse 19, Our response of love is based in and flows out of God's love for us. But the fact that this is true, the fact that, the, that our love is based in His, means that we are able to love much more deeply than we ever think ourselves to be capable of. We read in Romans of this love, the letter to the Romans. We read that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. God set his perfect love on us. He so loved us that he sent his only son to die for us. And he works this very same selfless love out through us. Our love drives us to know God. Our love drives us to care for our neighbor. Our love drives us to study God's word, to look back on history and seize his work in our see his work in our lives, to see his handiwork and creation around us. And God says of that, I will set him on high because he has known my name. To know and to seek to know is an expression of love. It's an extension of the love that God has first worked in us. Do you understand how staggeringly profound this reality is? It means that you are, by the work of God in your life, capable of setting your love on Him. Deliberately. Intentionally. If you put your heart behind it, God has equipped you with everything necessary through Jesus Christ to pursue a healthy relationship with Him. He's given you everything necessary to be able to depend on Him even in the hard times when it seems like nothing is going your way. And He seems, from a human perspective, to be far off. Our love for Him has power because it's based off of His love for us. All that's required is that we be willing to take the time to feed and nurture it through going to His promises once again, time and time again. To respond in trust to His gift of love by holding fast to Him in love. Again, we read that in verse 14, I will set him on high because he has known my name. So to respond in trust to his gift of love by holding fast to him in love is the first way that we can respond. And the second way is to respond in trust by calling on him. That God would tell us to call on him at all gives us a picture of the nature of the trust that he asks of us. Why 
do I say that? While describing someone who puts their trust in God as someone who will call on him implies that the person who's doing the calling is expecting to receive an answer. He says, he shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. It doesn't mean that we won't face trouble. But it does mean that he will be with us in times of trouble. And if we know that God is with us in times of trouble, then we need to trust him enough to call on him to give us the strength to get through those times of trouble. He shall call on me, our text says, and I will answer him. Calling on the Lord is an expression of trust in him. It was an expression of trust in Jesus' teaching about God when, after he prayed to God, they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. We have a very hard time asking someone for help when we don't trust them to be able to help us. And sadly, well, we, whether we realize it or not, at the back of our minds, that can sometimes be the reason why we don't call upon God. Because somewhere in the back of our minds, we don't trust them to be able to come through for us. That can sometimes be the reason behind our not calling on Him. But God reveals His love for us in this, that He gives us His Son. But He goes even further than that. He gives us His Word. He gives us history to let us know that He is faithful, that He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a Father who's watching over us. He's the one who says, He shall call on me and I will answer Him. You don't need to take my word for it. You don't even need to just take God's promise for it, although that ought to be enough for us. But you can look back and see in history how God has been faithful. You don't need... You don't see how God has answered you when you called on him? Well, perhaps he was answering you in a different way than you thought he would. Perhaps he was saying, not yet. But if you want to know the way that he works, the manner in which he works, the way that he answers, answers prayer, if you want to deepen your trust in him, then look back in history, beyond your own narrow field of vision. Speak with your parents or grandparents or maybe an elder or a mentor, sit down with them and ask them, how have you seen the Lord at work in your life? This can be something you kids can especially do. Ask your parents, you boys and girls, ask your parents, how have you seen the Lord at work in your life? How has the Lord answered your prayers when you called on him? That's an excellent place to look. There's so much that we can learn from our older brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's not the only place that God directs us to look. More importantly, look to the Word of God. And see how time and time again throughout history, God has answered His people. Discover the ways that He answers them. Marvel in His faithfulness. Look to the promises that God fulfills for His people and know that it is this same God who makes promises to you. 
for the one who sets his love on the Lord and calls on him. For that person, the Lord says, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. But more than that, we read at the very end, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now we know that as a rule, that's true. One who follows the Lord and is obedient, or even the average person who's secular but lives a moral life, such a person will live longer. Person who doesn't sleep around isn't likely to die of sexually transmitted diseases. The one who doesn't steal isn't likely to end his life early during a home invasion. One who doesn't do drugs isn't likely to die of an overdose. You'll most likely live longer than any of such people who don't follow in the paths of the Lord. There are practical benefits in walking to walking in the Lord's commands, but there's more to it than that. If we look to the one who trusted perfectly, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can see the consequences of his faithful actions and his trust in God, don't we? We read in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He suffered and died precisely because he was faithful. He was faithful in carrying out a task that involved his being cursed, beaten, scorned, rejected, and finally killed at a young age. But what does Isaiah go on to say after that? Verse 10, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. One commentator puts it this way. The perspective from heaven's balcony adds meaning to the scene. The fruit that Christ's death bore had eternal consequences. We read, he shall prolong his days. He lives and reigns eternally. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He's the firstborn among many brothers. In the context of Christ's work, we are brought to understand what view God takes with regards to long life. He's taking an eternal perspective. He hears us when we call on Him in times of trouble. He answers. As far as is necessary, we'll walk through this world and be untouchable. But where it is necessary, for reasons that may be far beyond us, God will lead us through dark valleys. But even in these valleys, he is here. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. We can take shelter in the presence of the Almighty. He's never absent from us. He will hear us when we call and let us lean on him or even be carried by him to get through one day to the next. And at the end of it all, he will reward us. Taking the perspective of heaven's balcony, there will come a day when we are rewarded for the work we do, when our suffering is over and our toil is through. Perhaps then he will remove the veil and show us how everything we went through helped us grow in holiness, how in everything he worked for the good of those who loved him, who were called according to his purpose. But perhaps he will not. Whether he does or not, we can know that he is good and we can trust in him. 
we can know that he works all things for our good. That if he is on our side, though those around us may be dropping like flies, we are untouchable. And we serve boldly in his kingdom because of it. And if things do come our way, it says he will deliver us from trouble. If things do come our way, they're not without a purpose. And they're not without end either. If we remain in the shadow of his wings, we'll enjoy an eternal reward. This gives us the courage to face even the most demanding and terrifying of situations. This gives us the strength to go on through when every other hope fails. This gives us the boldness to carry out God's kingdom work wherever and whenever it's required of us because we are going from strength to strength. And when we go home to our eternal reward, because of Christ, we too can see the labor of our souls and be satisfied. And in the immortal words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 20 to 21, we too can say, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Remember God's care. Set your love upon him. Hold fast to his promises and call on him in your hour of need. Trust in him, and he will answer. Amen.